Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. In case you don't know me, I am Dr Neil Buttery, food historian and author. Today we're going to be delving into a topic that I think many of you are going to be very interested in because the topic is Tudor food and cuisine. I am talking to Brigitte Webster about her new book, Eating with the Tudors, which has just been published by Pen and Sword History. Do you know someone else who's published with Pen and Sword History? Me, of course. There's my biography of Elizabeth Raffold called Before Mrs. Beaton. And there's a dark history of sugar currently nominated in the best first book category of the Guild of Food Writers Awards 2023. What a segue that was. Before we start, remember the post-bag episode at the end of the season. I want your comments, your questions and your queries. Do you have any experience of cooking up 16th century recipes or eating Tudor food? I would love to know about them. So please contact me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post or send me a DM on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Neil Buttery. I'm on Insta and Threads too as Dr, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Or post on the British Food and History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. <sighs> also, if you're enjoying the podcast and you haven't already, please leave a review, follow or rate, preferably with five stars, the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your continuing support, as always. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or pint, or indeed anything you choose, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. All money goes back into making more content. On that very same page, you can become a £3 monthly subscriber. £3 is about $3.80 in US dollars. And you'll get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter, and my Easter eggs. These are the darlings that I have to kill to keep the podcast to a reasonable length. There are lots and lots of them now, as well as a bonus episode from last season, and the mini-season about forgotten foods. There are two Easter eggs associated with this episode. I shall tell you about them and any other news at the end. Okay, back to today's episode. So yeah, today I'm talking with Brigitte Webster, who currently lives in a modest-sized Tudor manor house in Norfolk. And my goodness, has she thrown herself into Tudor life and living. Of course, a large part of Tudor life is cooking and eating, and she is quite the expert in the history and culture of food and drink at this time. She also grows many of the hard-to-get vegetables in her own kitchen garden. She's channeled all of this research and knowledge into her book, Eating with the Tudors, as I said, published by Pen and Sword History. We talked about how she came to live in a Tudor manor house, how the food changed going in and coming out of the Tudor period, food and the four humours, and how ideas about that also changed, favourite cookbooks, fritters, sops, mince pies, cheese, and many other things. I shall be back at the end to tell you all about the Easter eggs and other news, but now, Tudor cooking and cuisine with Brigitte Webster. Welcome to the British Food History Podcast. You're very, you're very welcome. How are you? 
Hello. Well, I'm absolutely fine. And I am really excited to be on your podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, we've kind of sent messages on Twitter over the years now, I think, but we've never actually spoken, have we? So it's lovely to speak to you. You've got a new book out. Hey, before we talk about the book, we need to have listeners learn a little bit about you because the way you've got into this Tudor cooking and Tudor life in general is, well, it's quite the immersion. I mean, we all like to do some historical cooking at home. I'm sure most of the listeners do, but you've taken this immersive stuff to a whole new, a whole new level. Yeah, I have. And uh, it's come rather unexpectedly as well. Uh, my, my journey to where I am now actually started 36 years ago, believe it or not. <laughs> I grew up in Austria, where I was also trained as a teacher mm-hmm. for various subjects, and cookery and history were two of those subjects. And while I was waiting for my first teaching post, I went to Germany to earn some pocket money, mm-hmm. and that's where I met my English husband. Ah. So after a few years in Germany, we then moved to the UK, got married, and after I arrived here, I wanted to get into teaching. And I was hoping to do either history, my passion, or cookery. Well, (laughs) they didn't want any teachers for either subjects, but they were always desperate for German teachers. Ah. So I ended up teaching German for 25 years, even though that is one of the subjects I'm not qualified to teach. (laughs) But I managed to always smuggle in that little bit of cookery, that little bit of history into my German lessons, (laughs) which was always well received. But after 25 years, so, you know, a few years ago now, I decided, now I've had enough of teaching German. I want to immerse myself into where my true passion lies. And that turned out to be the Tudor period. We, at the time, lived in a farmhouse in Hertfordshire, Mm -hmm. which dated to roughly the 1500s. And I've always been very keen on learning new skills. And so I took up furniture restoration and upholstery and anything to do with that. And I started buying 16th century furniture and 17th century furniture Mm -hmm. that needed a lot of work. Mm. I restored them and obviously then placed them among furniture in the house. And it didn't take long for friends to say, you know what, coming to you, it's like a walk back into historic England. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was not just the house that started to look like a Tudor home. Uh, They were given Tudor food because I enjoyed cooking Tudor recipes. And when they went into the garden again, wherever they looked, there was Tudor history Mm -hmm. staring them into the eye. (laughs) And uh, so this idea of taking that a bit further started to slowly grow. But the real turning point was meeting Professor Susanna Lipscomb in 2000. 
17. And she's great, isn't she? Oh, she's lovely. Yeah. And and she, in the conversation to her, she showed real interest in what I was doing. And on one of the courses, on, on, on one of the tours she led through Hampton Court, she <laughs> out of the blue said to the group, right, and now I am letting somebody take over who knows a lot more about Tudor cooking. We are here at Hampton Court in the famous kitchen, and it's over to you, Brigitte. <laughs> and yeah, you can imagine it was. Um, a shock, mm. but it was her way to make me understand that there are people out there who would like to know from me what Tudor cooking involves. Yeah. And so she suggested, you know, you really need to get active on social media, share what you know. Honestly, she said, share what you know, because at one stage she even said, what there is about Tudor history and cookery you don't know isn't worth knowing. I mean, what a nice compliment <laughs> is that? Yeah, so um, I started doing that from our Hertfordshire home. And in 2018, fate stroke again in that this little, this small Norfolk Tudor manor appeared on my husband's screen. Mm-hmm. We had known, absolutely no intentions of moving ever again because my husband had suffered a severe heart attack the previous year. And obviously, you would not want to move house after that. No. But for some reason, there was something that made him book a viewing. And he said to me, you can either come or stay behind, but I'm going to view this house. And I thought he was absolutely out of his mind. Uh, But yeah, I came. And the weird thing was, even before we entered the house, we knew we knew we had come home. That was going to right. be our new home. Amazing. Put the old house on the market. And here we are. And uh, it is going to be the place, the venue, which we are not just calling home, but where we can invite people in to share what Tudor living in a small manor house was all about because it's not uh, reflecting royalty, it's not reflecting the very poor, it is reflecting what people with a little bit of money Mm. achieved, could do, what did they eat, how did they purchase food, and, you know, what was daily life all about. And most Tudor cookery books are geared at exactly that type of person, somebody who lived in a manor house, had a little bit of spare money to purchase a book. So here we are. Anybody (laughs) owning a a cookery book at this time had to kind of be reasonably well off, didn't they? They weren't cheap. Yes, yes, yes. But it was the first time uh, where when you actually could purchase uh, a printed book, where previously it was only manuscripts Mm. and these were really out of most people's reach. So I even believe the first genre of books to be printed was cookery books. So definitely a market early on. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because food's obviously important and people, you need to be able to cook for your lord or if you are the lord or lady, you you 
obviously need to get that organized. It makes sense that they're the first kinds of books to be printed. But it's just yeah. so odd how, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, academic history has kind of just glanced over food almost yeah. completely. It's changing now. People are becoming much yeah. more interested in it. That doesn't surprise me that there was lots of cookery books, even though <laughs> it's just nuts how people don't t- tend to look at them because everybody eats. Not everybody goes to war. Not everybody has political discussions, but everybody eats. And yeah, mm. it doesn't get the attention it deserves, I think. So the fruits of your labour, your cookery labour, has been funneled into eating with the Tudors. There's a lot of recipes in there. And it's nice to see you've cooked every recipe because there's a photograph to go with each one. So they're all tried and tested <laughs> recipes. Yeah. I really like your approach to how you organised the book, going by seasons. Was that... um something that came to you immediately or was it something you had to think about? Because I don't think I've really seen that before. And it's really good because it helps you understand the rhythms of the year, which cookery books, certainly written at that time, you don't get an idea of. Well, I have always had my own kitchen garden, something my parents taught me as a child. And I still do have my own kitchen garden, but now it's very much like a Tudor kitchen garden where I'm growing all sorts of vegetables that are very hard to come by these days. Mm-hmm. And I also very much like the, the, the change in seasons reflecting the food we eat. I, I do feel that as a society, we have somehow lost the ability to gauge what is in season because due to supermarkets supplying us with everything all throughout the year you know unless you have a garden and unless you grow these Mm -hmm. items yourself it it would be hard to tell so that is something the Tudors that luxury the Tudors didn't have no supermarket so to them it was something second nature but we 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 need somebody to guide us through and that's why i decided to organize my cookery book in seasons because it was important to me to take the reader through the seasons mm. helping them to understand why certain food was used excessively maybe in some seasons and perhaps not at all in others. I I also feel it highlights the times of plenty, the seasons of preserving in the autumn, Mm. and also the much (laughs) disliked lean days in spring. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah, that that really comes across very, very strongly. Actually, before we talk about some of the things you've got in the book, I'd like to ask about your primary sources. Do you you have any favourites? Because I'm sure listeners will want to go in and check some out because I'm sure most of them are available somewhere on the um, internet, on Google Books or whatever. Is there any that stand out as as favourite manuscripts for recipes? I must say I I like every single one. Mm -hmm. And I went out of my way to include every single one that was available to people living in England between 1485 and 1603. Mm. But the one that I think appealed the most to me was uh, or is The Good Housewife's Handmaid for the Kitchen, which was first published in 1588, Hmm. 
what makes it so significant, I think, is that it is one of the first to address the female cook. Ah. Rather, the lady managing the household, that would be me. Okay, I'm doing both, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> and, and clearly, this is a book which is aimed at the affluent household, mm-hmm. uh, very much like the people who would have lived here in, in our home, who could afford to purchase a book. And several recipes call for game, venison. Mm. So... Presumably, the audience was located at a country estate. I also find that the proportions suggest a moderate-sized family, which is very useful today. (laughs) And most dishes in typical early Tudor fashion are boiled or stewed. But interestingly, the book was definitely aimed at a household with a bread oven, mm. which we have. Ours doesn't work anymore, but anyway, but I, I thought it was just interesting. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was nice to see a good few recipes from Thomas Dawson and Eleanor, yes. Eleanor Fetter Place. They're my two favourites. I really like their books. So it's nice to see uh, that they're represented in there. The food and drink of the Tudors, you know, it's just the Tudor period is what, about 120 years, 130 years? So in the grand scheme of things, not a huge amount of time, I suppose. But when you're thinking, or when one thinks about Tudor food, it's not really something that's static. There's certainly the beginning. I've used, I've seen various menus for feasts of Henry VII, and that's very medieval. It looks like form of curry or something like that. And yet when you come out in 1600, is that when Elizabeth died? Yeah. 16 yeah. or something. <laughs> it's a completely different world when it comes to food. How and why did the food change across this period? This really was the century when what people ate at the beginning to what was served at the end changed, I would say, just as much as the last hundred years now. Mm. Uh, if we look at what our grandparents in their childhood eight to what we do now. I mean, mm. there's enormous difference. Yeah. Everything changes, even how we see what's healthy and what's not healthy. And uh, under Henry VII and his son, uh, Henry VIII, attitudes and what people liked and what they perceived as healthy centered around basically large amounts of spices and more meat. Mm-hmm. The more meat, the better, actually. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and at the close of the century, we see new food coming in, such as turkey, sweet potatoes, cauliflower, and so on, from not just the Americas, but also the continent. Mm. And the first part of the 16th century in culinary terms, is still very much, as you pointed out, medieval in characteristics, with uh, a a certain tendency of grinding meat, the so-called forced meat, very thin sauces served with roast meat, uh, an abundance of spices, dried fruit, dried pulses, and clearly that noticeable lack of fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. Yes. And most 
importantly, this was a period when the church dictated very much what had to be eaten on certain days with endless weeks of prescribed uh, fasting mm-hmm. during Lent and then feasting for Christmas. Yes, we forget, don't we, that um, Advent, which is kind of a day when you're kind of warming up, getting your little chocolates out of your Advent calendar. <laughs> we forget that that used to be a yeah. quite a big period of fasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right up to Christmas Day, extreme fasting and only from Christmas Day onwards did the feasting take over. Mm. Uh, absolutely. Probably will be much healthier for us these days with the amount of food <laughs> we gorge on after Christmas, uh, during Christmas. The early Tudors desire to eat a so-called balanced diet mm-hmm. meant that they strived to maintain their healthy status by eating food with the same humors. Yes. Mirroring their own specific body's makeup. Mm-hmm. And I often uh, explain to people it on my own personal example. So mm-hmm. in practical terms, that would mean using me okay. in Tudor terms, uh, I am a woman of past childbearing age, okay. and therefore have been ascribed hot and dry humors, okay. according to the principles of Galen. Mm-hmm. And in the reign of Henry VIII, I would therefore have been advised to stick to food reflecting exactly that, hot and dry food that was uh, spices roast meat and wine dry wine so i'm all right that's all right yeah. under henry the eighth i'm all right <laughs> uh, in, if i wanted to stay healthy i'm okay and interestingly only if i started to show symptoms of illness would i have been advised to eat the opposite namely oh, food see with cold and wet properties. So we're talking fish and fruits. Yeah, that mm-hmm. th- that is what the doctor would have ordered. But that does actually change by the end of that epoch under Elizabeth. By the 1600s, it was generally believed that the humors in the body had to mm. be constantly addressed with the opposite humoral food to keep that healthy balance. So for me, remember the the dry and hot body, mm-hmm. I would therefore have had to eat cold and wet food, basically treat my body as it was constantly sick, like I back see. in Henry's time. So it's like, was, um, it's like some weighing scales. You need to tip yeah, them so they're equal e- again. Exactly. Mm. And it's to me, it's very much like the 21st century debate about eggs, should you eat eggs? Should you not eat eggs? I yeah. remember when I was um, a young teenager, everybody said, yeah, one egg a day. Yeah, I then remember that. Mm. Oh, don't eat eggs, don't eat eggs, <laughs> cholesterol, too bad, too bad. And now we're going back again. Yeah, no, eggs are actually good. It's got the good cholesterol. Yeah. It is a little bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, it's never changed, has it? We, food's going, the, the science behind food ever changing and the fact that food determines our health which obviously does to some degree but yes a balanced diet now is very different to a balanced diet then where 
I guess it's pre-science, really, pre-proper science. That doesn't come until, what, the 1660s and 70s with the 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 Royal Society and the Enlightenment. But they're certainly on their way out. One thing I think I've picked up on is that the the mentioning of humours, this might be completely wrong, but do they mention humours less often by the time you get into the 17th century? And do they seem to be um, moving away from that? They still do, but... By then, physicians are forced to take a fresh look at the whole Mm. concept because by then, England has undergone quite a few severe food shortages. Mm. The population started to grow, actually started to grow during Tudor times. So people had to revisit this ongoing debate. How do we feed? all the people. Mm. So they started to look at the prospect of making vegetables more desirable, let's put it that way. And uh, you can definitely see a change, a rapid change from using, even amongst the the tables uh, uh, at the top, we see a change from away from the spices more towards herbs, Mm. uh, more salads. So we are talking actually for the first time ever, raw vegetables, raw salad materials. Mm. But that still didn't mean lettuce as we know it. It was mostly herbs, radishes and uh, these type of vegetables. So food did change over that 100 years greatly. But um, there's definitely some ingredients or maybe some foods that I think really do sum up cooking at this in this time period that people might may or may not know about and I thought we might mention a few of them the one that stands out to me is verjuice yes absolutely mm. which here in England meant it was a mild sort of vinegar made from crab apples mm-hmm. but in Italy for instance it was made from unripe grapes but I think Tudor cookery also mentions an awful lot. Rose water, ale. Ale is a preferred method of using uh, fluid. Spices, Mm -hmm. and I think Tudor spices definitely are nutmeg, cinnamon, mace, anise, caraway, and possibly ginger. Then Mm -hmm. there is obviously the dried fruit and pulses, and (laughs) not very much to my delight, but lard and suet. As we know, mm-hmm. in England, in Tudor times, olive oil was very expensive. It had to be imported. Yeah. So therefore, it really was only available to the very rich, the affluent, and therefore lard and suet still features a lot, except for Lent, obviously, when it was forbidden. And I think one also needs to mention pies, Oh, God, no Tudor cookery without Mm. pies and no (laughs) Tudor cookery without pottages and the sops at the bottom. Sops, yes. I always think of that. I've um, never really made sops. Well, actually, we better tell tell people what sops are. What's a sop? I'm pretty sure that in Tudor times it meant just any stale bread, Mm. a slice of bread that's gone stale, and we will know that happens very quickly. Leave it out overnight and it's gone stale. And the Tudors 
were very good in reusing stuff. Nothing was thrown out ever. So they used that to put into the bowl at the bottom and on top of that slice of stale bread did they then pour the pottage. But some people, because we don't generally allow bread to go stale anymore, you can uh, just take out a slice of toast and toast it. And that is pretty much the same effect. Yeah, it's good. It's also interesting. Well, I've assumed this, in fact, so you, I'm probably wrong. You always find out that you're wrong, don't you? But d- does the word soup come from the word sop? Yeah, yeah. yeah? There ah. is generally the belief that uh, sop came from soup, yeah, as the two went hand in hand. Yeah, it's just odd, yeah. isn't it, that we call the that the food that they soup yeah. is named after the, not the actual yeah. food itself. I just find that quite... <laughs> Quite strange. Oh, one thing that I really loved reading through your book was it's something that's so intrinsically English or British that the habit of buttering bread appeared during the Tudor period. <laughs> something I've never, <laughs> it's so common in every day. I've never given it a second thought, but I thought it was a great, a great fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like it because there are definite clues that it actually started here in Norfolk, where we had this large minority of Flemish people Mm. who settled here, and they brought butter really with them. Where the English were still using lard and suet, the Flemish preferred butter, not just for cooking, but they also put it on their bread, which we do every day now, Mm. but then it was a real novelty. And there is um, a genuine belief that it started right here. And there's one interesting letter at the uh, Norwich um, archives where a Dutch person asks the wife back home uh, well, he's telling her about the problem they have here in mm. England, where he and his mates have to make their own butter because all the English eat is pigs and pigs fat. <laughs> and uh, I think that just gives it a nice personal touch. Mm-hmm. There's a good reason that we can believe that it started here, yeah. here or London. So I, I guess um, it was all milk being drunk as a just as is, or all being turned into cheese? I guess we were big cheese yeah. makers, weren't we, in uh, um, Well, it was mostly used for making cheese, mm. yes, mm. the milk. But uh, again, at the beginning uh, of the Tudor time, cheese was seen something that the labouring class ate because, you see, it was convenient food you could take with you to the fields where you worked. It, it was just really convenient. Uh, and it was pretty much despised by uh, the upper class. But towards the end of that century, people are beginning to look at cheese as being something quite delicious. But of course, being rich and influential, it had to be foreign. So English cheeses were still looked down upon, but any French, Dutch or Italian cheese was very welcome. So Parmesan, Moved in. <laughs> yeah, oh, Henry VIII bought a lot of parmesan, didn't he? <laughs> Looking through the recipes, it, it's nice to see that they have all been tried and cooked by you. Were the is there any in there that you would um, 
stand out as good places to 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 begin if you're not used to doing any Tudor cooking? Any any favourite ones or ones that you go back to often? I think the one that I always suggest for total beginners are the fritters. Right. Because they're easy to make and generally they appeal very much to the modern taste mm. buds. Mm. Anybody can do and do well, and they taste really nice. Have you ever tried a tansy fritter? Yes. Have you ever dared? Yes. Have you? Yes. What was it like? Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> but I must admit, I did it with very little tansy. Hmm. And you, honestly, you don't need more than a pinch because it is very bitter, very unpleasantly bitter. Right. Neither my husband nor I had any consequences. <laughs> so <laughs> I suppose it did. in order to make yourself ill, you would have to eat great quantities. I pride myself in trying everything unless it's clearly very poisonous then obviously i'm staying away from it but tansy needs to be tasted by people like myself once Mm -hmm. yeah well you you've done it so we don't have to so thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) well appreciated (laughs) oh Oh dear were were there any recipes maybe that ended up in the book that were hard to to pin down because the great thing about having the way you've laid it out in the book you know you have the transcribed recipe and then your interpretation of the recipe so it's good because you know people might want to go off and interpret their own so it's good that you've shown your workings as it were you haven't just written the recipe with no reference to the original but were there any really difficult ones to to pin down or any disasters that didn't make Um, it into the book usually the recipes are nice i find but there's sometimes the odd one where i just think where where were they going with this one (laughs) well i can honestly say that none of the disasters has made it into the book okay they were disasters for instance Mm. if you ask my family they very much disliked brawn they simply found it too salty yeah things were very salty weren't they yeah but uh, that's the way it was i personally did dislike a pottage which I prepared with hops once but I think it was my mistake it it turned out to be unedible actually it was so bitter but it was my mistake because I harvested the hop uh, the, the hop shoots way too late so this year, I'm going to try it again. I will revisit the recipe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but making sure that I'm using the very fresh, the very small hop shoots instead. Yeah, I suppose they get very bitter and astringent, do they, yeah, quite quickly? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Good, good for making beer, but definitely not something you want to put in your, to your pottage. <laughs> <laughs> the one recipe which was or might be a bit difficult to source, um, is one of the salads, which uses salsify root. Nice. But I have managed to source it here in Norfolk in various supermarkets. So I thought if I can source it here in Norfolk in supermarkets, there is a chance everybody might be able to get it. Mm. I've seen it sometimes in greengrocers and things like that. Yeah, Yeah, it does crop up sometimes. It's It's a really nice vegetable, actually. Like yeah, it. it's a little bit tedious to scrub and to clean up, but yeah, um, the taste pain. is very pleasant. And, you know, if you want to go real Tudor, obsessively Tudor, mm-hmm. 
it's got to be done. Uh, I do grow them in my garden now for convenience. I also grow skirret because that is the one vegetable I couldn't get anywhere. Skirret's a little bit like um, a carrot or a parsnip. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, uh, but a lot thinner and a lot longer. Mm -hmm. They prefer to grow in very moist soil, so you would find them near water. Mm. I started them off in my vegetable garden and they clearly didn't like it there. So the root that they produced wasn't usable for cookery. So I stuck them all out and they're now residing next to the moat. Yeah, it looks promising. Okay. So this year we're trying again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's very all good. trial trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, it's good that you keep to it and you know, you're determined to get these things working. A lot of people will be put off quite quickly, I think. Is there anything you think we should um, bring back or anything we can learn from the Tudors and their approach to cooking that we can, you know, apply to today? I personally love fresh flowers in salads or as food mm. decorations. Yeah. And that was very much a Tudor way to make any food look more presentable. Uh, it, it just such a simple way to yeah, instantly agree. turn mm. the most basic meal into a celebration of culinary heaven. <laughs> I also would love to bring back fritters. And I have noticed that more and more restaurants do actually offer some kind of fritters, which is uh, very interesting to note. Then obviously you, you do have the mince pies with the heavy meat content mm -hmm. and i think the christmas ones should have that as well yeah i do <laughs> i'm a big fan of meat in a mince pie i think i think we should eat mince pies outside of christmas time because they were <laughs> eating all the time weren't they in the past and yeah uh, putting meat back in the mince meat it, it, they're just so delicious and if i say that i'm in in real life i'm actually a vegetarian <laughs> so if i say bring back meat in mince pies uh, throughout the year, yeah, it, there is something to it. But you asked what we could learn from the Tudors. Mm. There is something I think we really must learn from the Tudors. And honestly, that is how not to waste so much food. Yeah. It is alarming how much food we allow to go to waste and simply throw it out. Mm. And in Tudor terms, that would have been unthinkable, unacceptable. Yes, in any household, wouldn't it? What, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. part of society you're in. Yeah, and mm. even uh, affluent houses, you know, leftovers from uh, a feast were given to the poor. Now, I'm not saying that we should give our leftovers to the poor, but for instance, supermarkets, why, 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 why don't they just give away mm. any food which has an expiry date of that day or something. But uh, I think that's where the Tudors actually still show us which way to take because, uh, yeah, it can't go on like that, can it? It certainly can't, no. Good. Good answer. Hey, it's time to wrap up. Whereabouts can people find you if they wanted to have a look at some of the work you do, aside from your book, of course? I am active on Facebook under Tudor and 17th century experience. Mm -hmm. They can also follow me on Twitter, which would be Tudor Food Recipe, or even Instagram, and that's Tudor underscore experience. 
So three different social media outputs. They can follow me mm-hmm. in what I do daily. It's not all about the food. Some of it is following the restoration of the house, how I slowly recreate a Tudor garden mm-hmm. you name it it's basically life in a Tudor home yes I must admit I did feel sorry for you was it last winter or maybe the winter before you sent a lot of <laughs> you tweeted quite a few messages showing how cold it was yeah 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 <laughs> it is but that's what we bought into I have however this winter put my office up in the dining room in the great hall because Mm. at least I've got an open fire here (laughs) so I just light first thing I light the fire in the morning and then get to work so yeah there are means and ways to get around it good have you got any other projects coming up or any uh, Uh, events or talks coming up I am currently working on my second book good which is all about how to recreate a Tudor garden in your own backyard. Mm. Uh, So lots of experience-based advice mingled in with facts, well-researched, of course. Of course. uh, And that will be out the year after next. And from January, Mm. fingers crossed, I will set up a little YouTube blog where people can follow me Mm. recreating the recipes from the book. Oh, great. So anybody who feels that they could do with a a little bit of guidance could just follow me. And we will do it through the seasons. So I'm starting after January because I'm thinking or hoping that maybe Father Christmas will deliver some of my books. Mm -hmm. So come January, the lucky recipients of those books will be able to tune in And we start off what people would have cooked in January right through the year. And a YouTube channel sounds like an excellent idea. I've been meaning to do one for ages and just never seems to happen. Yeah, (laughs) it it does sound a little bit daunting, but sometimes you have to push yourself. (laughs) No, you do. You absolutely do. Oh, no, the work that you're doing is just so good. It's so interesting. I really love the tweets that you send out and um, you really make us feel like we're living it with you. But without any of the discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. That's exactly what I wanted to achieve because nobody needs to share the pain. Thank you, Brigitte. I have left all the social media handles that she just mentioned in the show notes, along with other things we discussed, a link to her book, Eating with the Tudors, of course, and also a transcript to the book that she mentioned, The Good Huswives Handmade for the Kitchen. By the way, if you want to know a little bit more about the history of cheese, there is a previous episode, Cheddar in the Cheese Industry, with Peter J. Atkins. And if you want to know more about fasting and Lent, there is my series of Lent episodes, episode two being most pertinent to today's discussion, which was on the history of Lent. So check those out. The two Easter eggs. Now, these are two very good ones. First of all, Did the Tudors eat potatoes? And then, what even is a potato? Because it's not as straightforward a question as you might think. The other Easter egg is all about the banqueting course, something that appeared for the very first time in the Tudor period, but it's very different to what we think of as a banquet today. So if you want to access those, don't forget, you can do so by going to the website, britishfoodhistory.com, 
Now, something that I keep forgetting to mention, I did an Elizabeth Ruffled tour of Manchester a while back on Twitter. I've left a link to the thread in case you missed it. It was really good fun to make, dashing around Manchester city centre, filming in all of Elizabeth's old haunts. Also, don't forget, in September, I'm giving talks in three different places. First up, the Elizabeth Raffold event at Manchester Central Library. Now, that's on the 13th of September at 6pm. It's a free event. Anyone can come, but you have to book. There's a link in the show notes. What's particularly exciting about this is there's also going to be a selection of raffled artefacts to view as part of it. So if you're in Manchester in September, don't miss that one. Second, I'm at the Ludlow Food Festival, Sunday the 10th of September at 2.30pm. Again, talking about Elizabeth Raffold. And I'm at the Chelsea History Festival on Friday the 22nd of September at 6pm. And I'm talking about the dark history of sugar. Link to those events are in the show notes too, of course. Now, don't forget to contact me regarding the upcoming postbag episode. But look, it's time to go. Please have a wonderful week, and I shall see you in the next episode of the British Food History Podcast. Cheerio.